This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Katie Polsby, the entrepreneur behind the relaunch of heritage brand C.W. Stockwell. You may not be familiar with the name C.W. Stockwell, but you know its most iconic pattern, Martinique, the banana leaf print that graces the walls of the Beverly Hills Hotel. Martinique was first released in 1942. Over the next 80 years, it has become one of the world's most recognizable wallpapers. But the company itself fell into neglect. Last year, Katie relaunched the brand and is in the process of bringing Martinique, alongside a fresh collection of patterns, to a new generation. I spoke with Katie about how a career at West Elm, Serena and Lily, and Warby Parker prepared her to be an entrepreneur legal challenges that come with owning a frequently copied pattern, and why she's prioritizing a great website over showroom representation. This podcast is sponsored by High Point Market. There's a lot of excitement in the home furnishings world as High Point Market exhibitors prepare to present a dazzling array of new products at Fall Market October 13th through the 21st. This year, in addition to checking out all those new launches, you'll want to check out the special registration process for the new extended nine-day market schedule. So when you go to highpointmarket.org register to request your passes, be sure to read the simple instructions on how to select your primary attendance period. That's highpointmarket.org register. I'll see you there. This podcast is also sponsored by PaintZen. Designers are all too familiar with the challenge of finding a great, reliable painter or wallpaper installer. Well, PaintZen is making it easy. With a national network of experienced and vetted professionals and a dedicated project manager for every job, PaintZen simplifies the process. Wherever you are, you can get a quick and easy online quote, not just an estimate. Best of all, designers can join PaintZen's trade partner program to earn 10% back on booked projects. Visit paintzen.com to find out just how easy painting can be. That's paintzen.com. And now, on with the show. Katie, you're in the process of revitalizing a 100-year-old brand, and obviously there's a lot of history there, and we're going to talk about that. But I wanted to start with what's going on right now, the way that everyone has completely changed how they do business because of COVID. I'm wondering... How much of this do you think that's going on right now will last? What's your what's your sense? I've been thinking about the same thing. Yes. Right? So so what do you what what do you what do you think? Well, there's there's I think a lot of really interesting things. Like actually, a friend of mine recently bought a new car, and her experience was incredible. She it was all done, all the paperwork, everything was done over Zoom and DocuSign. She wasn't sitting in sort of like a weird car dealership desk office for two hours. She was in the comfort of her own home with coffee. And then they basically set up a time for her to pick up the vehicle and she was in and out of there in 10 minutes. And they actually called her after and said, you know, we're actually thinking of sticking with some of this. How did you, how was your experience? And she said, honestly, never want to do it the other way again. Right. So, I'm, so I mean, I guess this is this is the issue. I mean, I, th- I think of this in, in in part over the weekend. I was I was writing my column about Wayfair and sort of this phenomenal quarter that they just completed, where all of this business was suddenly forced online, and four billion plus in in revenues in the quarter. And I'm thinking, how do they plan? for the future when they have no idea how much of that is going to stick around in the Absolutely. coming quarters, right? And and how has that customer been been impacted by this time? And as you just described, there are so many experiences that customers are having right now that that may be very appealing to them. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that is particularly exciting for me in our industry, in our world, is that a lot of customers, designers, everyone in between has suddenly been to boot camp on how to use their computer for digital communication. The need to travel and showcase a huge car full of samples, of course, will always still happen. 
but at least now we have this comfort level that I think did not exist previously. One of the one of the areas that I wanted to get into in in more detail with you today was some of your some of your background and experience that's that help to sort of educate you in in how you think about at one point you described the the quantitative side of aesthetics and I I wanted to talk about this remarkable education that you had early on in your career. And in this case, I'm not talking about the Spanish major and art history <laughs> minor at Georgetown. Uh, we can get into that later too. But <laughs> but I, I wanted to talk about sort of the, the school of, of William Sonoma that was sort of an early place of education for you and, and what you learned there and, and hear a little bit about that, that story. Absolutely. I mean, I love to talk about that era because I think it was something that I really sort of almost lucked into. Uh, I had a cousin who was an early merchant at Pottery Barn, which was a a then very burgeoning brand in the mid nineties. And at family dinners, et cetera, she always talked about her trips around the world, researching heritage quilt patterns, and then making them available through Pottery Barn. And I just thought, well, that sounds incredible. So I ended up in a one-year retail management sort of training program. And the wonderful thing about it was that for three months, we were not responsible for anything but learning and reporting back on what we had learned and forging relationships with key people around the country, uh, sorry, the company, which really gave me an incredibly sort of global view of how a retail company works and understanding all the sort of cogs in the wheel that make uh, a product come to life and, and also that help to make a product become successful. And it was an incredible sort of boot camp for what later became, you know, a 20 year career in retail and merchandising. Uh, And so at the time, after the three months, we interviewed for different positions that were open in the company. And I lucked into the first ever assistant buyer role at West Elm. Um, And that was actually before the brand was moved from the Bay Area to Brooklyn. And so I was the fifth employee of West Elm. (laughs) And we moved all five of us over to New York soon thereafter, at which point I began to lead the textiles side of the business. And, you know, and and West Elm was an interesting moment because we were trying to work with a lot of suppliers that actually were already key vendors for Pottery Barn, but we needed to find a way to sort of value engineer products to be able to uh, hit a a sharper price point. Because at the time, Mm. the goal for West Elm was to be a little bit of a sort of lower price tier than Pottery Barn was. And so I that like was that a sharper, sharper price point. I like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's a it's a it's a nice it's a nice euphemism, but yes. it really is true. I mean, what right. was fun about that is that we weren't we weren't trying to take quality out of the product. We were actually partnering hand in hand with the suppliers to understand what would they do or what would they need us to do to find some cost savings without sacrificing the quality of the product. And actually, a lot of the things that we were able to uncover were then adopted by the larger company and by the teams at Pottery Barn and Williams Sonoma, which was great. And like you mentioned in the beginning, I think it was a, a truly amazing beginning to my career because it was so rewarding to me to see how the left and right brain could work together to to understand the sort of quantitative side of of how products work and why certain products do better than others. And to be holding two betting programs in your hand, looking at the sales in the spreadsheet and, and seeing, oh, I see now exactly why this is stronger. It's because this border on the on the, on the the duvet is limiting for this customer or something like that. So, and the other fun thing that I really came away with from West Elm and, and has been an, an amazing sort of push-pull in my whole career was that uh, that relationship between merchandising and design and thinking about how you structure a business in such a way that you're driving it with fundamentals and products and product categories that you know are going to be meaningful to the customer without sacrificing the edge and the fun of what the design team is tasked to infuse into a brand and always finding that balance and you know the struggles let's call them struggles they were never anything um, violent or <laughs> you weren't going to blows over it. No, but. no, but it was just it was really great to have that tension because it made you really think hard about 
what it is, what are the key things that you really need to ask for from your design team to make a product category successful? And, and then which parts of, of that are you willing and able to relinquish to the designers to do on their own and to you know infuse their own bells and whistles that make a product and a brand sing? And so for me, you know, that's a tension that I now face internally because I am the chief merchant and I'm also the chief creative officer of CW Stockwell. Um, and so when creating our first collection in, you know, 40 years, when we relaunched last year, it was a really fun experience for me to see both sides of that coin and to say to myself, no, we have to put certain weird color combinations and weird wildcard products into this line because it's the thing that is going to garner attention for us you know they may end up buying our blue and white geometrics but we have to tease them and and lure them in with the black and clay diamond print you know there's a lot of sort of push pull that we have uh adopted just because I know it works. Right. And that whole notion of sort of loss leaders or, as you say, things are, that are just going to draw the, the customer in, even if it might not be what you end up really writing the orders on. And that's something that it sounds like you've learned over, over many years at, at several different companies. Exactly. So let's uh, – I'm going to jump around a, a bit just because we you, you mentioned the, the relaunch of, of CW Stockwell and I – I want you to tell the story for, for listeners who might not be familiar, the, the history of, of this brand that you're in the process of sharing with the world in a, in a new way. T -t tell us, where's a good place to, to, to begin with the, with the incredible story of C.W. Stockwell? Well, I like, to, I like to joke that it's a long story, and hopefully we have enough time to tell a 115-year story. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it actually begins in 1905 um, with a man whose name was C.W. Stockwell, and he was the grandfather of a close family friend of mine. I grew up in Pasadena in Southern California, and the grandson of C.W. Stockwell was a man named Remy Chatain Jr., and he became very close friends with my family during the last around 20 years of his life. And the inception of the brand was actually really interesting because it was... Mr. Stockwell, who actually in Iowa was a pharmacist. And at the time, pharmacies were general stores. And from what I can gather in a lot of research I've done on the sort of beginnings of the company, he was actually selling some, some building products in his general store, including, you know, machine made wallpapers. And he started to notice that they were selling really strongly for him. And then he heard about a bunch of tract homes and, and building developments that were that were happening at the same time in Southern California. And he saw, you know, a land of golden opportunity. <laughs> and so he very bravely picked up his family and left the pharmacy behind in Iowa and moved to Southern California right then. And at that point, very quickly opened up CW Stockwell. And it wasn't actually until I think it was 1922 when his daughter, Lucille, who's a very important figure in our brand, um, <laughs> She actually had just graduated from Parsons and she had studied both in New York and Paris with Parsons and, and had a really sort of incredible, well-rounded design and architecture background. And it was really, from my understanding, it was really her vision that helped to elevate what Stockwell was doing at that time, which was, you know, a lot of sort of machine-made uh, lower-end wallpaper products for these sort of tracked home developments and say, no, actually, you know, there's a whole art behind this and we should really be getting behind this. I actually spent a lot of time doing research on the brand um, in the year before we relaunched because interestingly enough, we actually did not have the plan to take over this business. Uh, the, only the only reason that we got involved was actually because towards the end of Remy's life, he asked my mother to be the executor of his estate. And he had really done well in his career and had, you know, multiple homes to sell and a huge art collection and an incredible collection of antiques. And it was a huge undertaking for my mom. And she dealt with each thing one at a time. And, and she finally got to figure out what she was going to do with the company. And she realized it was interesting that she actually had never had any overt discussion with Remy about what would become of this company. 
And I think in my research, it seems clear that I think he assumed it would just fall into the ether, which as we know would have been tragic. So I, all that is to say that we didn't have any conversations with Remy during his life about the backstory of the brand, unfortunately. So I actually spent so much time, um, doing like forensic investigative research on the brand. And it was a really fun process. I actually spent two days at the Huntington Library in Pasadena. Also spent a lot of time on sites like newspapers.com and Ancestry.com. And what, and what did you find? What did you find on all these sites? Oh, it was amazing. So for example, I actually spent a lot of time on Ancestry.com and used their census data. And actually in that process discovered that Albert Stockdale, who was the botanical illustrator who created the, the very famous iconic Martinique print for the Chateaunes, sure. yeah. he lived two houses down from them in Pasadena. So I imagine that's how they became friends. Um, and so that was a fun discovery just from looking at the census from, I believe, 1942. <laughs> how interesting. Yeah. And then on newspapers.com, I searched for Chateaune. I searched for CW Stockwell. And the best discovery actually was a series of what I think was a recurring ad buy that they had placed in the LA Times from basically like 1935 through 1945. It was either once every other month or every week. And so I have a whole trove of really amazing ads um, for Stockwell um, with hilarious, very captivating slogans. Um, (laughs) Even discovered actually that they tried to make wallpaper seem really appealing during World War II as a way to sort of get through the duration with all the gentlemen gone. Uh, it was a really, it was really enlightening. <laughs> Is that right? the, the wallpaper was going to soothe you, your nerves while your, while your husband was away. Exactly. War. Exactly. It said something <laughs> like wallpaper, you know, a salve for the duration, something like that. <laughs> and then I even found a playbill from 1945, actually among Remy's belongings. And I, I was looking at it and I thought, why would this, why would he have kept this? And I looked through it and it was actually for a production of a play at Hollywood's now defunct Biltmore Theater. And it actually had a really amazing advertisement for Martinique and a three page feature that they probably got for placing that ad all about Stockwell. And it was a quote from that that said, practically all the papers they had been receiving were copies of imports. Why not create their own line using California talent? Why shouldn't wallpaper design be an accepted career for young artists? They went to art schools throughout the state, persuading students to submit designs suitable for wallpaper reproduction. In a short time, California art began to make wallpaper headlines, and the CW Stockwell Company's famous Trend of the Times wallpapers were born. So I thought that was really, it, it sort of alludes to, but at the time, the wallpaper industry was really doing just a lot of sort of French and Asian reproductions of, of kind of classic motifs. There wasn't a lot of innovation or, you know, proprietary pattern development. So this idea, and I think really born of the fact that Lucille and then also our friend Remy both had attended Parsons and were surrounded by incredibly talented textile designers. They said, what, why wouldn't we tap into that? We're taking a quick break from the show to hear more about High Point Market's plans for the fall. High Point Market Authority has been very busy these past few months, working with building owners and exhibitors to develop plans and implement protocols for a safer fall market. The multi-million dollar collaborative effort includes extending market from five days to nine, increased cleaning and disinfecting, limiting capacity within each space, and monitoring staff health. And rest assured that they're committed to doing everything they can to protect attendees. For full details on Market Authority efforts, please visit highpointmarket.org slash HPMKT safe. And now, back to the show. Well, it's it's interesting because you, so you mentioned, and and there's a wonderful story of sort of how your mother first sort of came to to know Remy in in, in the first place. Uh, It it sounds like she was... uh, she sort of put her, herself in, in, in front of him in a, in a way uh, so that she could make his acquaintance early on. Yes. Jill Polsby is, <laughs> she is a force. And, you know, <laughs> the same reasons that humiliated me in college and high school um, are the reasons why I have her to thank for our involvement in this company, because she actually coveted a tour of his house in Pasadena 
She didn't know him. She just knew this house that he had built around the corner from our house. And it was this really, it still is there. It's a really beautiful Japanese meets mid-century architecture home that he built um, for, for himself and his partner, Eugene. And she was just desperate to, to see the inside of that house. And so she, <laughs> she figured out um, the moments during the day when he would walk by with his dogs and just sort of casually happened to be in front just of the house. happened to be there. <laughs> <laughs> One of those days and, and her, her classic line, which I would always hear, you know, in the elevator in Macy's in high school, like, hi, I'm Jill Polsby. <laughs> and at the time, you know, when I was 13, 14, it was horrifying. But in oh, this case, I can imagine. in this case, I was, you know, it was, it was wonderful because what, what happened that day is, is a truly charmed, beautiful friendship began as things happened, uh, unfortunately, Remy's partner, Eugene, passed away only about two years after they had moved into the home. And so it left Remy with uh, a real need for close family friend relationships. And he, in those last 15, 20 years of his life, had an incredibly adorable, sweet friendship with my mom. And even when she would go out of town, my dad would take him out for oysters. And, but, you know, my mom and Remy, they, they spent time going to the symphony downtown. They went to museums together. They went to the opera. And so it was just this really wonderful kind of multi-generational friendship that developed. And as a result, he spent time with us as a family, you know, for Thanksgiving or Christmas. And during that time I was at West Elm. And I remember one moment actually asking him about his career and he mentioned, oh, yeah, I've been I've been in the wallpaper business for a century. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember I couldn't believe that, especially at the time, I think it was around 2003, wallpaper was not important to the design community, or at least in my purview at West Elm, we were not talking about wallpaper at all. And I just couldn't believe that the one pattern of wallpaper that I had ever even heard of or seen, that his company made that. And was I was his. Yeah, wow. and I just I just couldn't believe that moment, and I I felt like wow, I I know somebody really important in the wallpaper business. <laughs> I know the Martinique wallpaper man. Yeah, I mean, I just again, I wish that I had the sort of force foresight to think, oh, maybe I'll somehow get involved with this business. You know, of course not. There's no, there was no vision. There was no that game didn't plan. occur to you at all back in those. No, days. and even no. even um, you know, as as he was nearing the end of his life, it wasn't our game plan. It was not this sort of evil vision to take over the reins of the company as soon as he died. You know, it wasn't anything like that. It was actually my mom having the the vision to say, you know what, we don't know enough about this company right now. I wouldn't even know where to begin to try to sell it or how much for. So I remember her saying this to me, how hard can it be? <laughs> and she really beautifully That Jill Polsby. Exactly. She's a doer. We love her. <laughs> she, uh, you know, she had a PT cruiser at the time. She was driving down to meet our suppliers in LA and keeping them happy with handmade uh, homemade bunt cakes and plying them with, you know, a paycheck to paycheck to keep them keep them going uh, until she actually figured out how this this business worked. And she did it, you know, and she kept Martinique in production. She kept it in stock. She met lots of people along the way who became her biggest fans. Um, I still, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm a shadow of her, according to my printer. He misses her dearly. He's like, oh, my goodness, she, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's just been, it, it's been a true treasure. It was a treasure to watch her in charge and, and having so much fun in this moment in her life to be able to, to contribute to the ongoing legacy of this brand. So she took over in 2013 as soon as he passed away. And in those few years uh, was was continuing, like I said, to continue to keep production going uh, and never be out of stock in, in that one print, which was really at the time the only pattern that was still in circulation. And at the time, I was actually running merchandising for Serena and Lily. And I kept sort of thinking about how would I help my mom um, and I wasn't sitting there thinking, I can't wait to to jump ship and go do this. I mean, I think until I had a clear vision for how I would take the reins, I, it didn't even cross my mind. And that sounds completely 
unstrategic. Uh, but it finally was clear to me that actually in the same five years that my mom was running the, the show, a lot actually transpired in the world of small batch textiles. And a lot transpired in the world of multi-line showrooms. And a lot sort of was shifting. And I started to take note of that, especially because at Serena Lily, I was doing a lot more work that related to the interior design community. We were actually partnering with a lot of designers. So it, it sort of made me do that sidestep over to the interior design world and start to pay a lot more attention. Well, so what were you noticing? You mentioned the, the small batch textile world, for example. What were some things that suddenly started to, to jump out at you that, that made you think more about this? Well, the biggest thing, Dennis, was this idea of accessibility. And what I noticed was that brands that I truly admired, um, like Brooke Perdigan, like Rebecca Atwood, they were actually selling in showrooms that were also open to the public and that weren't in these behemoth, giant, uh, you know, 400,000 square foot design centers where it, it felt a lot more new. It just felt a lot more exciting. And I think also what I noticed was that at Serena and Lily, something was resonating where we were presenting a customer base that is not necessarily only interior designers, but we called them, and I think everybody calls them design enthusiasts who are very passionate about their homes and who crave access to color and pattern and beautiful things, but are really intimidated by the idea of either hiring a designer or going into one of those buildings and, you know, getting the once over. <laughs> and I just, <laughs> I just felt like there's a lot shifting. And I started to notice, you know, a, a couple showrooms where, of course, I'm sure that, you know, 90% of their business comes through interior designers. But the, the idea of openness and atmosphere and environment and ambiance was really enticing to me. And so walking into a place like Harbinger, or actually my cousin was a co-founder of a, of a company up here in the Bay Area called Well Made Home. And both Joe Lucas and my cousin and her partner, they really set out to create an, an environment that was not just filled with amazing product, but really inviting and, and enticing to walk into. And you felt like you actually belonged there no matter what your customer profile was. Um, and so I just started to take note of that minute shift and suddenly I understood that there was, you know, a way to approach this world, um, but again, not be beholden to the way it had always been done. And as soon as I got going, I realized I would be such an idiot to, <laughs> to ignore the 20 years of my background that, of course, is centered on textiles product development, but also has such an emphasis on burgeoning direct-to-consumer brands. I also spent a year at Warby Parker. And it just I it was really important to me to try to apply as much as I know about those worlds to this heritage brand, especially because I felt like everything I knew about Remy and his mother, I felt like the marionette strings that they had me on were all about shaking it up and changing and moving forward. And so, you know, I've every at every moment, at every kind of crux, I've really tried to stop and sort of take stock and say, you know, is this the right way to do it just because it's being done that way or it has been done? Can we think of a different way? And I'm not even thinking like we're doing anything better or smarter. I mean, we're ju I just want to question everything. So, so let's get into that a little bit because you you mentioned briefly your your time at Warby Parker. You you had an incredible experience at Warby Parker, and you've you've talked in the past about how it really taught you about the power of e-commerce, and, and yes. that that stuck with you. Yes, I think two things there. I came away my 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 role there was head of customer experience, which as at the time it was the first sort of four months of the brand's inception, and so. You can imagine that was quite a big umbrella. Um, but what I was really struck by and what I have come away with was the idea of extremely top-notch customer service. And I couldn't believe you know, the, the number of times we said, oh, your dog stepped on your glasses? No problem. Here's a new pair. Or, oh, you know, we shipped you the wrong ones? Why don't you keep those? We'll send you a new pair. Like It was just, it wasn't gratuitous, but I remember thinking, that's just so great. 
but that is like the the foundation of this brand, which is we've got you and we get that we messed up or we get that we maybe we didn't even mess up, but we want you to be happy. And so we've already had a few instances where something has gone wrong with a designer or, you know, and actually recently somehow our warehouse shipped the wrong color of, of wallpaper and it, it was installed. And we said, you know, do you want to keep it or do you want us to replace it? We'll pay, we'll pay for the installer. I mean, this isn't something that happens once a week, obviously, and I don't want to make a habit of it, but I don't want anyone to say even one bad word about us. And so that was a huge learning. And then also, like you said, the e-commerce and the power behind it, you know, we actually at West Elm, obviously we had a website, but it was in the very early days of e-commerce and we weren't, you know, we weren't best in class just yet. And Warby Parker was taking a really scientific, methodical approach to customer experience on the site and user experience and and how do you have the sort of consistency from that top of funnel when somebody first learns about your brand to when they come on the, on your website to when you get your pair of glasses to when you buy your sixth pair of glasses. And so that idea of sort of consistency and developing a voice for a brand and thinking about packaging and the site experience, like all of that was really super helpful. And I, I draw on that experience over and over. Um, at the home for for Stockwell. So let's talk about how you how you bring all of this to Stockwell now. You you mentioned your your sort of hesitation about design centers and and some of the energy that might have been felt upon looking at some of those kinds of showrooms uh, and and how different Joe Lucas and Harbinger feel relative to that. How do you think about how you want to get this product in front of designers in perhaps a, a different way than they're used to seeing product like this? I think that's a great question. And it's something that we're, we're constantly iterating on that exact question. What's the right approach? Uh, we actually recently um, sent a handful of really beautiful rattan boxes with our full collection of samples. I actually found a partner in Vietnam to make these bespoke rattan boxes that are perfectly sized for our collection of samples. And we actually sent it sort of uh, unannounced and and sort of surprised and delighted some designers who didn't know about us and were really excited to get something like that in the mail, especially these days. Um, so, <laughs> you know, again, like drawing back on that sort of key tenet of customer experience. And we talked a lot about surprise and delight at Serena and Lily and Warby Parker and, and, and the real value of that. And that's the way, you know, that you can get people to be your advocates and brand champions for years on end. I joked a lot with my friends and family when I was getting the company restarted, because it was like, well, we are a startup, but we're also 115 years old. So there's definitely some expectation (laughs) of of doing things gracefully and doing things in a very professional way. And so uh, spending a lot more on budget up for these sort of materials and for great photography and for, you know, beautiful packaging, it's, it's, it's all part of it because to kind of get back to your question, I think the idea of the power of a direct to consumer brand and also the appealing nature of, accessibility to the fun of getting some samples of fabrics that you just die for or leafing through wallpaper samples that have just arrived and scheming for which project they can be used on. And it it just is a, it's a magical experience that until recently only a small group of people, i.e. designers could actually experience. And so there's, for me, there's a, an intersection between that market and the wider net of people who love pattern, love color, want it in their home and just need to find the pathway to get to it. Well, and you mentioned earlier these design enthusiasts, right? And, mm-hmm. and are you are you thinking about how can you reach them too as as you think about growing and dare I say scaling the business? Is it is it part of your vision to, to bring it to this much wider audience? Yes. I mean, that's a short answer. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the, you know, the caveat is 
how do you do that in a way of continuing to allow the brand to feel elevated and aspirational while still maintaining a focus of accessibility and openness? And I use the word, I get made fun of a lot, but I use the word insouciant for our brand because (laughs) I think it speaks to this idea of we can't take everything so seriously. So therefore, you know, design enthusiasts and interior designers, everyone in between, anyone who likes a pattern should be able to buy it and should be able to live with it. And obviously, you know, there's a price point that allows a lot wider net to be cast. But when you start to think about brands like Restoration Hardware and Serene and Lily, they are in a very sort of large mass market that is, of course, the upper tier of a mass market. But they're selling a lot of fabrics, a lot of wallpapers, a lot of pillows. And it's of not course. it's not only to interior designers. So there's a whole market out there. And I need to find this very fun, narrow, curvy path to bring a really beautiful, historic brand in a graceful way to more people. And that that sounds like a really fun adventure to me. I just want, yeah, I want to have this adventure and I want people to kind of look at us and say, wow, that's cool that they're doing that, you know, and, and I hope I well, don't, and, you know, I hope I don't make anyone mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and that's part of the tightrope act, right? It, it, is that you, you don't want to alienate one group versus, versus the other. And, and the trade world can, can be a little tricky, can be a little confusing at, at, at times, don't you find? Absolutely. I'm, I'm learning about it every hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, I- I- exactly. And, and so what do, you, what do you make of that world and how does it fit in with, with the 20 years that you referred to earlier of this incredible merchandising and, and retailing experience that you, that you had where you learned so much about how to communicate directly to these people that wanted your product and in the trade-driven world, it's, it's often there are, there are some additional steps you have to take. Well, right. And that was actually one of the key reasons why I actually initially shied away from entering into agreements with showrooms around the country and, and elsewhere in the world. I, I realized quickly, so we, mar- we launched in March and we actually hadn't set up any showroom arrangements except for with well-made home and harbinger and i was definitely still considering uh going into a couple more places if of course if they would have us <laughs> but i had this real-time experience of this idea of actually a customer called one day from i think she called from oklahoma and she wanted to buy 13 rolls of martinique wallpaper and i had this real live experience of playing that out i said okay so if i have a showroom that covers that territory i have to hang up with this customer, give her the phone number of that showroom. She has to call them. They have to hopefully know whether or not we have it in stock, but they're probably going to call me anyway. And then they're going to call her back, which hopefully in the, in the two days with all of these phone calls have been made, she hasn't changed her mind. Right. And I just need to sit and wait for all that to happen. And it's less, for me, it's actually, it has nothing to do with like a showroom commission or losing that uh, margin on on the sale. It's more. It was really quickly obvious to me that that's not how we should be transacting business in 2020. And I did not want to be sitting on my hands waiting for the phone to ring to say we've got an order for you. Like I wanted to feel like I was totally in control of how we reached out to designers, how we worked with them. Well, so fast forward to today, where do you find yourself leaning? when you think about, do I turn this over to other multi-line showrooms around the country? Is that my best option? Or is there some other way that I can be in various other markets, but as you were just describing, have more control over that customer interaction? We're not right now going to be pursuing any additional showrooms Um, And that's mainly because of all the reasons I mentioned, but I'm a huge fan of, of all of the showroom owners that we've interacted with that, you know, I have great relationships with them just over, you know, especially with social media and email, and there's no shortage of love there. It's more just that I 
maybe I have a little bit of a control issue, but I just love telling the story. <laughs> We're taking a quick break from the show to hear more about Paint Zen. Designers, there's no need to spend hours digging up a great painter or wallpaper installer. Paint Zen has done it for you. With a national network of experienced, vetted professionals and a dedicated project manager for every job, Paint Zen makes it easy. Even in these challenging times, Paint Zen is open for service, ensuring that customers, painters, and partners are staying safe by following local guidelines. You can get a quote, not just an estimate, remotely. And book now, schedule later for maximum flexibility. Best of all, designers earn 10% back on book projects. Visit paintzen.com to find out just how easy painting can be. That's paintzen.com. And now, back to the show. Um, the, the other challenge that you, that you have, and, and I want to talk to you a little bit about this because it's a, it's a unique situation with relaunching your, your company that is so well known for this one particular pattern, Martinique, mm-hmm. and it, right? And it's the, it's the, it's the golden egg of, of the, of the whole collection. And it's this whole issue around intellectual property and sort of safeguarding this, this, this jewel of yours. And I know that that can take up quite a bit of your time. T- tell me a, a little bit about the challenges there. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that it's a, it's, it's an ongoing challenge is also an ongoing motivator. You know, I'll just start by saying that, you know, they always talk about imitation being the sincerest form of flattery. And it's true, you know, and I think if you look at every textile company from the highest end to the, you know, mass markets of Target and the likes, every textile brand has their own version of a large scale tropical palm print. And so, you know, when you think about the big picture of IP in the textiles world, there it is right there. It, it is, it is muddy. It is not regulated. It is, it can be ugly. And so we have a backstory there and uh, basically it, it, it's convoluted, but Remy, our family friend, and Harry Hinson were old friends and they were stalwarts of the design community. They loved each other. And from what we gather, they were co-founders of each other's mutual admiration societies. Um, and so when Remy began, began to close his proprietary showrooms as he moved towards his own retirement, Harry Hinson offered to sell some of Stockwell's most iconic designs in his own showrooms, including, of course, Smart Meek. So then in 2014... Uh, Jill Polsby running the company. <laughs> Hinson was <laughs> Hinson was bought by Dongia, and they continued to purchase Stockwell patterns, including Martinique. Of course, they did. It was it was iconic, and it sold really well for those Hinson showrooms. From the beginning to the end, the paper and fabric that we shipped, or that Jill Polsby shipped to <laughs> Dongia clients, was as always branded as CW Stockwell on the product salvage itself. So there was no question about the ownership of the pattern. And around 2017, three years after Harry Hinson passed away, uh, Stockwell, our team, discovered that Dongia had decided to print its own reproduction of Martinique. This was a super sad outcome, all the more so as it had been born of what I think was originally a mutual agreement between two friends who loved and really respected each other's work. And we always say, like, Harry would no more have printed Remy's Martinique than Remy would have printed Harry's splatter design. You know, it's, it's, sure, it's the sort sure. of same mutual sort of position in, in the world of textiles. So long story short, the, re- the result of like a six-month legal entanglement with Dongya is an unfortunate compromise, um, wherein the brand is allowed to continue to reproduce our pattern with a license agreement. Um, and that a license agreement acknowledges the pattern, which they were forced to rename Hinson Palm, belongs to us at CW Stockwell. And this is a timely conversation because, as you know... Indeed. Uh, yeah. But it just also goes back to sort of the power of originals. Um, and I think the topic of originals versus imitations in design is, of course, really complex, just as it is in fashion. Um, on the one hand, I think, of course... Talented people can arrive at similar concepts independently. Of course, um, 
if two talented designers working in the same era, for example, take on a leopard print, it's possible that their work will have some rhymes to it, but it will not look identical. Um, and that's because I think the mark of an artist is like a signature. Um, it may be sort of cliche to insist upon it, but it bears the unique imprint of a single sensibility. Um, and I think that's sort of why we love it. That is like, that's precisely what we're seeking in art. I mean, you could also talk about it in literature and fashion and of course design. Sure. And, you know, our roots go all the way back to Lucille Chatain employing artists to create marks. Um, and so we're trying to honor the mark, usually of a single human who nailed something. And in this case, Albert Stockdale, the down the street neighbor of Remy and, and Lucille Chatain, really nailed the pattern. <laughs> No, no. It's, I mean, it, 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 it's, un, it's unfortunate. And it's, and, and I, and I know that it, and, and not just for your company, but for many companies, it, it almost becomes a side business having to, having to look out for the, the imitators, the copycats and, yeah. and, and, and sometimes it's very serious and, and how unsettling for, for you and, and your mother to, to suddenly find without ever being told that new colorways had been added to this, to this line. And it was, it was your, your line and, and exactly right. And they were, and they were doing that, uh, obviously, without uh, without any. And you, you mentioned it sort of being being timely because, uh, of course, we've we've just gotten the the news that the the Dongya assets have been sold. And and is is your is is your agreement still in still in effect with with whatever goes forward? Yeah, and I'll I'll come back to that. But I think okay. also, you know, when you're talking about like artists working in the same conceptual sandbox. I don't think that's what's happening when companies like whether it's Dongya in Connecticut or any number of copycats like in China or on Etsy that we're constantly policing against um, when they mock up a re reproduction of an iconic pattern like Martinique. I think what they're doing is opting out of the creative process and instead hoping to trade on customer ignorance about the artists behind the design or the original makers. And design makes that really tricky. The artists themselves are, I think, less visible. A perfect example of this actually is was when Hinson died recently. A number of the, of Hinson loyal followers were surprised to learn that there was a man named Hinson behind their favorite designs. And there are fewer guard dogs here than there are in art, where like an entire class of experts weigh in publicly and, and volubly on authenticity. There are fewer guard dogs here than there are in literature or we like readers and critics are constantly alert for the like most bare signs of plagiarism. And there are fewer, fewer guard dogs here than in fashion. Just yesterday, the government seized, seized I think, $4.3 million worth of imitation Air Jordans. There's no government official ready to do the same for Martinique. <laughs> so, Sadly, yes. Yeah. Yes. So when we... So when we found out that, that Dongia was printing their imitation of Martinique, we asked them to stop um, and they refused. They just refused. In a way, they know that there's not great enforcement here. And I'd say cynically, they hope to take advantage of that. And so where I'm at now is I'm, you know, I'm at the helm of a heritage iconic brand, but we're a tiny company. I hired my first employee last year. <laughs> So when they threatened legal proceedings, I decided to license the work rather than get tied up in a legal battle that would have zapped all of our energy and resources away from building this brand that I love. So luckily, I guess you could call it luckily, they were forced to at least acknowledge that it was a, a pattern of ours. They had to rename their imitation pattern as Hinson Palm. And while not perfect, it seemed like the quickest or best route forward at the time. And you mentioned this sort of timely moment. Um, Dongia was bought by Kravit. And actually, Hinson, separately, was bought by Scalamandre. Um, and actually, I'm really excited by the news, as I see Scalamandre as a great brand and one who does really respect the idea of artisans, craftsmanship, artisanship, and authenticity, because I think that they've probably endured a lot of the same nonsense with, like, their zebra pattern. So, oh, yes. You can imagine, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. So yes, the, the license agreement is transferred to the new owner and, you know, it remains to be seen what happens next. But because of the pedigree of this brand and also the pedigree and backstory of Scala Mandre, I anticipate it to be a, 
a really solid sort of w- way to move forward. Good. Okay. I, I'm 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 glad to hear that. And 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 I. And it's I all brand that, new, so we'll see. But that's that's my hope. Exactly. I mean, hot off the presses. I mean, it's literally the the, the news has just broken and the the sales have just happened. And uh, I'm I'm hopeful as as well that it will all be be handled well going forward. I know that it was a I know that it was a good seller. So it it certainly seems in Scalamadre's interest to uh, to to look after that. Since you and I last spoke, I, I, I went down numerous rabbit holes of just looking at how many images of your of your pattern are, are on so many things, including this adorable picture of two little girls at the Beverly Hills Hotel sitting in little banana leaf bathing suits that I certainly hope you're getting a piece of that action. Uh, <laughs> But it's but it's so challenging because and and I know you you told me this fun story of your your mother giving you some some note paper with your with your pattern on it, you know, saying don't don't worry I've I've stopped them from making this. But you you feel like you could it's it's a game of whack a mole and and how many how many people can you stop at once, copying your your famous and iconic pattern. Ultimately, we are the the sole producers and manufacturers and obviously the creators of this pattern. And I believe that anyone who's selling that pattern should be should be us. And I I think that it has an incredibly appealing nature. I think that it works on a lot of different end products. And I do spend a couple of days every month doing custodial work on the internet to find the people who are suddenly popping up, creating wallpaper, murals, bedding, etc with our pattern in a in a way that of course is not sanctioned by us and i hope that in this new moment in time that there's recognition that we are the true original here um and that there really <laughs> never there really never needed to be a second version and we will do whatever we can to sort of make everything copacetic in the way forward but we we truly believe that there's a reason for authenticity and a true original in this world. Well, and as you've talked about, the more that you can be out there telling that story uh, and making it perfectly clear where this pattern comes from and the story behind it, the more you've discussed sort of the more you hope that other people will be shamed into dropping their imitations and copies and, uh, and, and just recognizing that it's that it that it's yours and if there are going to be brand extensions one day they'll they'll come from you well dennis i'm just a girl from pasadena i'm not i'm not interested i'm not interested in scandal or shame i just i i love telling a great story behind a beautiful pattern and i i think that that really resonates with the clientele who loves to to tell that story to their in, in turn to their clients and I think that the the reason why all this was allowed to happen was actually because, and I talk about this a lot, um, during Remy's retirement, where the back ex- almost exact same time frame as the internet came on to the to the scene, and so he was not doing a lot of sort of active brand work or marketing for CW Stockwell itself. And I think that the story and the sort of inception of the pattern got lost in that whole time frame. And so for a long time, the design community didn't know the link between Martinique and Stockwell. And one of my most rewarding moments when I talk to designers and when I first meet them or tell them about the brand is watching the brain work, realizing that they never actually knew the brand behind Martinique. And, right. and that discovery is what I'm striving for and what I what I delight in, right? And 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 that's the that's the power of, of what you what you can do with all of this is you can you can tell this story, and in the meantime, you can navigate how best to to grow the the brand a, a around this. I, it's I know truly. It, I mean, right? I think I think Martinique has been. You know, it's obvious that Martinique would be like this sort of point of entry for us to be able to meet new people and reintroduce this brand to designers because of that connectivity between the product and the brand. And it allows people to know right away the kind of quality that we stand behind and the kind of craftsmanship that goes into our product. Um, I think that the the key here is 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 
knowing what I know, which is that this, the story of the brand is is very much not limited to Martinique. And during the sort of heyday of the brand in the 40s through really the 70s, the breadth of pattern and expression and color and innovation was mind-blowing. I mean, they were so incredibly uh, industrious. They had, they just were, there was, there's just a huge breadth of patterns from geometrics to stripes to plaids to twalls to florals and chintzes and some really hilarious twalls like um, there's one called egg money which is just a scene of of farmers dancing around in like a super graphic way like celebrating how many eggs they yielded that day <laughs> it's just <laughs> and so there's just this really wonderful spirit behind the brand that of course is anchored currently by Martinique and will always be uh, anchored by Martinique but I I can't wait to continue to iterate on this brand and showcase both some of the best most amazing patterns from its past but also to be able to steward amazing new things into the brand and, and new patterns and new fabrications and new ideas. And that's, that's something that I feel like I have scripted by my predecessors that, that we're not resting on any laurels here. The question is, is how, how are we going to do that in the next year, two years, none of us knowing sort of how long COVID is going to stay with us and how long these changes in, in shopping patterns and, and some of the habits that we're forming now are, are going to last. And that's what I'm the most curious about. And as you think about it, what, what does it make you want to focus on most? And I know you're someone who's very focused and very disciplined. What are what are you most focused on with, with where you want to, to go with this? I think it's a great question. I think that for me, you know, the, the first, let's say, month of this COVID crisis was a total sort of red light. Everything felt like it was coming to a screeching halt, even after we'd had an incredibly positive first quarter. Like you said, it required some discipline to realize we have to keep moving forward. You know, this is not the time to be terrified or scared, you know, not just about COVID, but about legal issues, but about uh, budget worries. You know, these are things that are always going to be around for us. And so as soon as we sort of picked up the pencil and started moving again, it was so liberating because I think especially in our world, we are so lucky in the home and design industry right now that, it looks as if many people are, are, are really actively looking within and, and wanting to make some changes and updates to their home. And how can we make this uh, really compelling moment, you know, and how can we build on, on how important home is right now? And so as we started to resume development of some of our newness and working on new ideas, even for next year, it's just so liberating to realize you know, life's going on and we're, it's going to look different and we don't know what it's going to look like. But if we, if we can really stay focused on, on the core of our brand and, and moving it forward, then it won't matter what people on Etsy do or what Kravit or Scalamandre do. It's, it's, it's about what CW Stockwell does. Really what that comes down to is the same principles and fundamentals that I've been tasked with for the last 20 years. We need newness it needs to be great looking. It needs to be well-priced. We need to market it well. We need to shoot it beautifully. Like these are all still true. So once you sort of grab hold of those sort of fundamentals, everything else kind of falls away and you, you get back to having really, you know, you get back to having fun and realizing that you're still in your dream job. <laughs> and, and now you have to think of your e-commerce and your digital marketing strategy. Exactly. Coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. Yes. Uh, yeah, but but the but the it sounds like you're you're convinced that there has to be a, a, a different way of of doing this and still be able to deliver the product to all the the different segments that want it. Absolutely, I think it's a fun challenge. I mean, it's it's total job security, right? It's it's constantly. Uh, <laughs> looking under every rock and figuring out how how that segment of people wants to be talked to 
one thing that we're working on that's outside of product is actually probably fast tracking an e-commerce capable site. You know, whereas six months ago, I thought we might wait longer for that. I think we're actually going to prioritize that and we're working to, to get that going really quickly. Um, and what, so, you and know, what tipped the scales for you there? What made you realize that you've got to prioritize that now? You know, there are a lot of factors. One is that, you know, we we actually, I felt like I couldn't actually pioneer a, a multifaceted digital marketing strategy without that component. You know, if, if you're leading all these, if you're paying to lead all these people to your site, but they can't convert and they can't buy product, you're giving them directions to a to a store that isn't even there. You know what I mean? I think it's really important to have the full view of what a digital marketing strategy looks like and ultimately have the site be able to convert whether or not, you know, right away we're going to have huge direct business either from consumers or designers and my goal is to have the site be functional for both t- types of customers. You know, I think it's more important to think of a holistic strategy and what does SEO look like and where are you sending them and what does the product page look like and and how can we make that feel really consistent? So I didn't want to start any of the digital marketing spend until I knew how the site was going to function. And so I felt like I can't have, you know, sort of like hopping on one leg. You can't do one without the other. Does that make sense? No, it, it absolutely does. And it's I'm I'm scratching my head over why I'm not having more conversations with companies about their e-commerce strategy. And so I'm I'm relieved to hear you saying this and that you recognize this this has to happen. This this seems to be such a loud message that we're getting right now from the world that we're living in and that it sounds like we're going to be living in for for some time. Right. Companies right? Companies have to be able to deliver this, whether whether you're going to get some consumers, whether you're going to get a group of designers and consumers, you'll figure it out. But you you have to have this this sort of landing spot for everyone, right? And I realized I can't be talking a big game about you know making a brand that's accessible and open to all without um, actually having a site that people can purchase from. I mean, we make it really easy right now, despite the fact that we don't have ecom like we have a great sort of conduit to direct email with us, but it's still lumpy or let's call it clunky. I I want it to be seamless and I want it to be easy. And then that way we can spend more of our time reaching out to new customers and telling them the story so that they can then come to our website and buy. (laughs) Well, and that's the thing. You're, you're almost hesitant to reach out to new customers right now because where are you sending them? Where are they going? What's an easy channel for them? Right. And we actually had to do a lot with our, you know, uh, printed collateral, you know, for example, we actually added an insert to our sample packages because we realized it wasn't that clear what people should do once they got our samples. So we actually included a really fun sort of pithy insert to say, hey, get excited. Your samples are here. What? <laughs> here's what to do next. And here's who to email and making it really easy, you know, in, in the absence of that sort of actual digital conduit. So we're doing a lot of band-aids and some of that is really fun. And I think actually the insert should stay, but it's more just thinking about, you know, what is that customer experience? How can we make it really seamless until we have the site? And even when that, when that is, is happening, you know, how do you kind of combine the analog and really sort of old fashioned, wonderful things that we love about brands like packaging and like note cards and those kinds of things and marry them with a really high class or best in show type site that makes people feel really inspired to spend time on it and experience the brand in the ways that we hope they will. Um, so the site is really important is, is, is going to be just yet another really direct expression of our brand. And it, and hopefully we'll do it in such a way that makes you feel like you're, you're sitting here with me, you know, talking your ear off. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and how great if, if, if you can build that out and make people feel that way and feel so directly connected to the brand and, and, and to you. That's the hope, at least. That's, <laughs> a, that's a tall order for it's a site. To, it's good but, to have goals, right? Yeah. <laughs> Aim high, Katie. Yes, yes. Yes. Well, so time frame? When, when, when are we looking at this? Uh, 
as soon as possible. I don't have a I don't have a time yet. ASAP. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yesterday, Dennis. <laughs> okay, because <laughs> I I mean pedal to the metal on this because yes. I am I am looking to you for for innovation. I am looking to you for for new ideas on how this can be done. I'm counting on you. Let me put even more pressure on you, Katie. I'm counting on you because you're you're one of the people that I know is is going to really deliver. And and so I I can't wait to see what you what you do, how you make this happen because I I know it will be well executed and 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 it's what the industry needs to see. So again, no well, pressure. My plan is to just put Jill Polsby in charge of it because I think she'll knock it out of the park. <laughs> well, that's not a bad idea. She's a doer. <laughs> I can't wait to see where this goes. Katie, thank you so much for spending time with us. It's It's been such a pleasure. Likewise, Dennis. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. A quick announcement. I wanted to extend a personal invitation to the Future of Home Conference. Last year was a truly special event. This year, we'll be live streaming it directly to you on September 14th and 15th. We're planning on breaking the mold for what a virtual event can be. Join us for important discussions with leading thinkers on how the design landscape has shifted and the challenges and opportunities that have emerged. Tickets are now available at futureofhome.com and attendance is free of charge to BOH insiders. Yours truly will be hosting, and I promise it will be a great show. In the meantime, if you want to keep up with the latest industry news, check out businessofhome.com. If you have feedback for the podcast or a story of your own to share, write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and Marina Felix. I'm Dennis Scully. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next week.